It gives me great pleasure to announce the General Secretary of the RMT, the Secretary of International Evening to Sam. There he is, Big Leach, give it up for me! Hello, hello over here. Thanks for coming out, everybody. Thanks for coming out on this cold January. Thanks to everyone that's turned up. And thanks for the support you've given to the RMT and all the other workers that have been on strike in 22 and now in the 23. There are some people missing here tonight. You get this every time you hear me. We've got Jeremy. He's with us. We've got other MPs. We've got SMP MPs. Caroline Lucas from the Green Party sends her solidarity. But there's a big question. Where's the Labour front bench tonight? When are they going to stand up with the rest of the Labour movement and join with us and say we are with you? We are going to defeat this law. We're going to defeat this government. We're going to drive them out of power. We're going to support you in your disputes. And we're going to guarantee that you win those disputes. And when we win that election, we're going to repeal all these anti-trade union laws and we're going to be a new bill of workers' rights right across the economy and right across our society because that's what we demand from people that seek to represent us. If you seek to represent the working class, well, you better show some empathy for working people now in these struggles, on the housing estates, in our cities, in our villages, in our counties. Working people are dying out for change. Everywhere I go, People are saying, let's change the economy, let's change this society. And I say to Keir Starmer, come and stand with us. Don't triangulate. Don't try and be a vanilla politician in a manila suit. Stand up for socialism, stand up for workers, and let's change this country going forward. Now you've all had the problems. You all know about our dispute. At the centre of these disputes is one issue. It's the distribution of wealth in our society. And what we're calling for from any politician is to guarantee that you support redistribution, that you support social justice, that you support working people in their struggles today and in the future. And we need to make sure that we rebalance this society that we rebalance the economy, that we rebalance justice. People are crying out for it and we've got to make sure we change it. So the message tonight is, let's go into all of our communities. Let's go into every place where workers are there waiting for change. Let's bring the trade union movement to those people. We will not be waiting for professional politicians. We will not be waiting for policy makers. The future now is in our hands. The future is in the working class. And the working class is back now. And we're going to fight for our rights and fight for our future. And nobody's going to stop us. And we have got problems. We will have all these people all these writers, even in The Guardian, the so-called liberal papers, they will be telling us that your demands are unreasonable, that you've got to temper what you ask for. If you wait for a government, it will happen. And they hate us. They hate working people. But if we are together, 
if we are united, if we build our movement for ourselves, we will be unstoppable in this country. And we're going to change this country forever and change it in our favour and redistribute that wealth, not from the bottom to the top, but from the top to the rest of the people in this society. So let's fight, let's commit ourselves. Make sure everyone in your workplace is in your union. Make sure that every workplace is organised. And make sure that your union becomes a fighting union on behalf of the people of this country so that we can change it. It's a cold evening. You've got to go home to your own families. Thanks for travelling out. Thanks for your commitment. Let's not let this dissipate. Let's fight, fight and fight again for our future. See you all soon. See you on the picket line and see you on the streets. Thank you very much. Enough is enough. Enough is enough. Enough is enough. another episode of work stoppage thank you so much for supporting this labor podcast and if you want to support us a little bit more since we are entirely listener supported you can donate to us on patreon which is a great place to listen to our overtime series and all kinds of bonus content if you're not in the discord already hop in there it's a great place to talk to us and learn more about the stuff we talk about on the show if you are a patron and you don't have your stickers yet just message us on Patreon and we will get them to you ASAP. And if you want to help the show a little bit more, you can leave us a five-star review wherever you think it will help. So we are going to start by following up with Case New Holland, which <laughs> I didn't think this headline would ever come across our desk, folks. The strike has actually ended after nearly nine months with workers ratifying a new deal. But that is unfortunately not the whole story. And we still don't have all of the details on what's actually included in the deal. Yeah, so uh, this is actually strangely a big weekend in Iowa labor news. Um, All right. So. Uh, Slipknot unionized. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, it took them a while to get all the votes because that's a big bargaining unit. There's um, like 35 it's... people in that band. Yeah. <laughs> well, you got to figure out. It's like, are the DJs in a different union? Like, Right, right. <laughs> but um, <laughs> That's actually a joke that will come up later. Yeah. <laughs> so on Saturday... January 21st, literally just two weeks after a previous vote on this, the case New Holland strike actually has now finally come to an end after just under nine months on the picket line by the thousand UAW workers at the two case New Holland plants that have been striking in both Racine, Wisconsin and Burlington, Iowa. Um, yeah, again, like just two weeks ago, there was a narrow rejection of Case's so-called improved last, best, and final offer, which they have apparently again improved. <laughs> uh, <laughs> really stretching the meaning of last, best, and final when appear apparently it was none of those things. It's crazy I that they can test that. the definitions of three words at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um, just the when I saw the announcement, it said uh, uh, improved. 
last best and final <laughs> offer, and I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> Improved really takes a little bit of steam out of last, best, and final. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I feel like you should just stop using those words and just say improved offer. It would be more honest. <laughs> but um, Well, they w- that would only be if it was an improved offer. That's <laughs> true. That's isn't. a fair point. So just two weeks ago, you know, we, were, we had discussed this, that there was a vote on a supposedly last, best, and final offer from Case that was shot down 55-45 by the workers. Now, two weeks later... The vote came in, flipped the other way. 62.4 to 37.6% voted in favor of ratifying the new contract and ending the strike. Um, So we didn't, unfortunately, get a ton of details this weekend. It's possible they've been released in the last few hours, but I haven't seen them, so apologies on that. But um, we did get some of the information, basically, in a statement from the company uh, they said that workers will be receiving, depending, you know, seniority, position, all that stuff, between an average wage increase of 6.3% and 8.3% per year, which is over the length of a four year deal. If inflation goes back down to a normal level, I mean that's fine. That's not bad. That that's mm-hmm. like pretty decent wage raises. It's better. It's better than what I would expect. You know, for a non-union worker to get during that period by quite a bit. Uh, but it is definitely lower than the ten percent immediate raises that workers had been hoping for, in line with the raises that were won by workers at John Deere mm-hmm. during the you know striketober back in October of twenty twenty one. Um, and but in a statement, the UAW said, in addition to the the wage increases, the new contract will quote shift premium increases, classification upgrades, as well as other improvements. End quote. And again, like it it's it's really tough to gauge this when this just happened and we don't have much reporting about it. That's another thing that's been really difficult with this strike is there's only like a couple of local papers that have been covering it. Mm-hmm. So with no national coverage. Uh, it, it can be kind of difficult to get like reaction from the rank and file because most of the national stuff or even the local stuff is that when it's right close to when it happens is mostly just publishing whatever like the union put out in a press release and whatever the company put out in a press release, which right. I mean, that's fine, but that usually doesn't get you the whole story. So, yeah, I mean, I'm really interested to see what the further details of this deal are, considering that it was a relatively close vote. I mean, like, you know, it did pass, I think, by a relatively healthy margin, but it wasn't like a landslide or anything. It wasn't like there was overwhelming support for it whatsoever. No, I mean, over a third of the workers voted against it. And I obviously, of course, again, I would love to hear and and see more direct interviews with the actual rank and file workers. And hopefully over the next week, some of those will come out and we'll be able to share those in the discord and have a good discussion in there about it. Um, But there's one issue that I have to feel like made a big influence on this vote compared to just two weeks ago, which is that over the intervening two weeks, the company has shifted its tone towards the workers to increase their threats by threatening to hire over 200 permanent replacement workers mm. to uh, replace striking workers. And I, I mean, I find it very unlikely that that did not play a significant part in shifting a lot of votes for people who may have been no's but kind of on the fence and then hearing oh, you might be permanently replaced, which is a thing that is somehow legal in the U.S. Uh, (laughs) 
I could definitely see that taking some people who, you know, you've been out on the strike line for nine months, things are getting kind of thin, and, you know, suddenly now you're being threatened. You may never get your job back. So I I think that had to have played a role. Yeah, I think because I think if uh, if I'm correct, is it the UMWA workers that have seen permanent replacements, quote unquote, permanent replacements come in? I mean, but they've still been out there fighting for a contract. Uh, uh, yeah, I believe so. Because that strike is classed as an economic strike, they are allowed to hire full time replacement workers. Right, and so ULP strikes, they're not. Right, mm-hmm. and so I imagine that you know a third of the membership there is like hey you know they're out there fighting we could probably do that too but then on the other hand it could be it could easily intimidate some people who really need that income and would fear losing their jobs but you know i mean while there hasn't been a ton of reporting from the rank and file on this deal uh, regardless of the term holding out for nine months is a pretty incredible feat i mean these absolutely workers have persevered through immense repression from the company and the state and, uh, I mean, the wage increases are pretty significant, and we really want to say, you know, good on them for sticking to it and, uh, you know, getting the win that they, you know, fought for. Yeah, I, I and I want to be clear on that. Like, you know, we may be a little pessimistic about everything that came out of the contract just because of the level of repression and threats mm-hmm. that these workers were facing. But if they hadn't gone on strike, there's no way they would have gotten an average of 7% raises over the next four years. No way at all, and certainly not if they hadn't had a union at all. You know, they'd probably be getting 2% raises. Mm -hmm. So, you know, details aside, I definitely, yeah, I I agree. We want to underline, like, huge respect and solidarity with the workers at Case New Holland for sticking it out there for nine months and going back with everybody keeping their job, which is always vital, and winning those real wage increases. So well done by those workers. Yeah, and you mentioned that you know this is kind of a, a victory for Iowans here. And we're going to yeah. move to our next story where we had covered Ingredion, uh, the the company that produces ingredients. Uh, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> in Cedar Rapids, well, just 24 hours after the announcement from Case New Holland workers, the Ingredion workers have also uh, voted in favor of accepting a ten- tentative agreement. On on Sunday, we're recording on uh, Monday, January 23rd, and uh, I mean, this is just ahead of hitting the six-month mark on the picket lines for them. Uh, according to a press release from the BCTGM, the newly ratified contract protects seniority rights, maintains benefits and work rules, safeguards work hours, and provides wage increases. And then, I mean, also critically, the new contract provides all workers with amnesty for striking after weeks of threats from Ingredion that they might refuse to even allow some workers back on the job. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's really huge because the level of um, uh, like punitive, uh, yeah, the level of like you know um, uh, punishment and like disciplinary action that they're going to take uh, on uh, the companies try to take on workers when they do come back to work is something that gets overlooked pretty frequently retaliation is that the word retaliate thank you that is exactly the word i was looking for (laughs) yeah um yeah no and it's one of those things you know fighting back against company retaliation is always annoying to talk about because it is a win it's genuinely a win on that these workers are getting their jobs back but it sucks that we have to treat it as one because Mm -hmm. like the company the company shouldn't even be allowed 
to threaten that. Like the fact that they're able to hold that over their heads as a threat is just one of the many, many ways our system weights all this shit in favor of the company because they can throw on these threats like, oh, we're just not going to hire some of you back, which they shouldn't even be allowed to do. But yeah, so the ingredient workers uh, went on strike back at the beginning of August. Uh, Again, we talked about this just a couple of weeks ago in our first show of the new year. And they were primarily striking because they were dissatisfied with low wage offers from the company, as well as the demand from Ingredient that that they accept higher healthcare premiums. So uh, in a statement, BCTGM International President Anthony Shelton said, quote, I'm proud of the tenacity of our striking members at Ingredient and commend the union negotiating committee for their rock solid commitment to achieving a fair and just contract for the members of Local 100G. The members went out as one, stood strong as one, and will all come back as one, end quote. I love the local name, 100G. Seems <laughs> pretty cool. It's just... Yeah, I, I, that's one of the things I will say doing this show that has been both interesting and confusing, which is trying to figure out where union numbers come from, because I, I originally assumed that, oh, there's a system for this. No, there's not. <laughs> Like yeah, they just think, number them, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I think that the members pick their favorite number, yeah. check a list if it's been used yet, and then ratify. You know, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if I'm that's surprised true either. More, I'm surprised more <laughs> locals aren't just the area code. <laughs> well, I mean, some of them are always great because you read about, oh, there's this local 925, and it's just that's why they named it that because <laughs> it's 925. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that makes a lot of but, sense to me. Yeah, or like yeah. when a marijuana workers call their yeah. local 420, you know. Yeah, yeah. Hell you know. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, so local 100G president Mike Moore told reporters from the Gazette that the deal was the best possible one that workers were going to receive, saying, quote, being in negotiations since July, I do not think there was anything left on the table. I think if we stayed out, we would have lost more, end quote. Um, and while we, again, this is another one, this just happened yesterday. There's very mm-hmm. little reporting on it. Um, but he, uh, the, the president of, of the local said that the deal saves jobs in, in lab tech and maintenance departments that were threatened with cuts that it protected overtime rules. That the company had been trying to go after it did require compromise on some work definitions, meaning that some, uh, workers are going to have to learn one additional job position for like flexibility in the plant for the, the management, but the company had been trying to force them all to learn two jobs. So there was some victory there on the workers part, but this, I will say at least the national reporting did have one interview with an actual worker there, which I appreciated. Uh, the AP spoke with, uh, one worker there, uh, Elaine Swiger, who said that she's happy with the deal saying, quote, it was something that needed to be done, but I'm also glad it's over. We're all ready to get back to work. I'm glad we stayed strong because we ended up with a lot better contract than the original end quote. That's nice. I mean, so far, I mean, I guess it seems that this contract was supported by the workers. And uh, I mean, we'll be happy to see what the actual details of that are when they come out. Uh, We'll probably just be covering that and talking about it in the Discord. But, you know, if you, you know, want to catch up with all of that stuff, you know, we'll, we'll be in there. But to move to our next story, we ta- we've been talking about the strike wave that's been happening in the UK for the past few months, and it really shows no sl- sign of slowing down. I mean, the past week, we saw, you know, not a strike, ac- a strike, but an action 
uh, by unions at a, um, at an organized rally. But, you know, just because there wasn't a, a, a strike there, there is a strike coming up. So we're going to start with the rally. Uh, on the 16th, a coalition of unions held a demonstration against the Tories' anti-strike bill that uh, were members of the National Union of Rail, Maritime, and Transport Workers, the RMT, the Public and Commercial Services Union, PCS, uh, Unite the Union, Unison, uh, Communication Workers Union, CWU, and the University of College, the University and College Union, UCU, Equity, and you know, actually, the list is long. I keep saying and like I'm ending the list, but it it keeps going. But all uh, the unions, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. basically, they're they're ramping up for a general strike, folks. <laughs> uh, and that's that's only a partial exaggeration. Uh, but the bill that uh, that the Tories have put have you know put forward is basically to require minimum service levels for eight different sectors that they've deemed to be you know essential. Which you know I mean th- these are essential services, but it you know can be kind of arbitrary when the state decides on certain things. But they want to make it so that during strikes that uh, that unions are forced to staff the buildings of health ambulance, fire and rescue, security, education, and transport to minimum staffing levels so that they don't actually have to shut down. And I mean, you know, the healthcare workers already make exceptions for uh, for emergency room stuff. And I, I just can't imagine transport. They're going to make it so that there's still enough. It's like, what so during a strike they have to mandate one man crews or something like that so they can get the thing they want anyway. <laughs> I mean, well, knowing I mean, the Tories, they're going to demand like eighty percent of normal staffing levels, effectively making it illegal to do any kind of effective action. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. The point isn't the point isn't to guarantee minimum service. The point mm-hmm. is to make a strike useless. Like, right. Because the point of a strike is to be disruptive. The point of a strike isn't to get a bunch of your friends and like stand outside the building and hold a rally and feel nice about it. It's the point is to economically disrupt your employer. And a, a quote unquote minimum service level is just another way of saying uh, you can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, I mean, it, it's been basically called an anti-strike law. That's just what yeah. it, it's, and that's that's exactly what it is. Yeah, and so. Thankfully, you know, as we've been reporting and trying to keep folks up to date on this, because this gets a lot more coverage in the UK press than we see here in the US, this is continuing to escalate resistance, despite, you know, the Tories lock on the government. So, um, I mean, you you said they're gearing up for a general strike, and that's only kind of a joke, because uh, a big part of why we wanted to talk about this this week is that the reason that you had that big coalition of unions getting together last week is to plan for an upcoming, like, day of action that's going to be the biggest single strike day in years, where at least five major unions will all be on strike on the same day, February 1st, including the NEU, which is the National Education Union, cover which uh, analogous to the NEA here in the U.S. or the AFT, um, the UCU, basically, which is your, your blanket college union, uh, ASLEF, which is the Union for Train Drivers, the, the Associated Society of Locomotive Engineers and Firemen, 
PCS, which is the public workers that uh, you mentioned already, Lena, and the RMT will all be on strike on the same day, which includes 300,000 teachers, 100,000 civil servants, 70,000 university workers, 12,000 rail workers, and plenty others. So you're getting over half a million workers out on strike on the same day. Yeah, it's a pretty impressive feat of organization and communication between all of these unions. Uh, people are often like, why don't we just general strike tomorrow? And it's like, well, you have to get organizations like this together so mm-hmm. they can like make plans and call each other on the phone and shit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and I mean, like, those are just estimates from a couple days ago, honestly. Mm-hmm. There was even some speculation that those numbers are going to increase. But I kind of wanted to hit on what each of these unions that has already committed themselves is kind of struggling for right now and why they're all coming together in this particular action. Uh, so the 300,000 teachers and support staff on that plan to strike are expected to close or severely understaff 23,000 schools, which is Hell a yeah. huge amount across the country. Uh, The teachers were offered a 5% pay raise, which is far below their demand, which I think is a 10% pay raise, if I'm correct. Uh, I believe so, yeah. Yeah, uh, because, you know, when adjusting for inflation, I mean, the teachers' salaries have actually dropped over 20% since 2010. It's a a huge cut to their wages. They've consistently been forced to take raises under inflation, which has culminated in this extreme cut to these r- essential community members and 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 workers. Then there's the UCU, the university, t- uh, the university union that has been bargaining with 150 different universities who have been refusing to offer any significant pay rises uh, to any of the university workers uh, who have taken you know raises under inflation for over a decade as well. These workers are also fighting to attempt. Uh, they're also fighting an attempt by the university administrators to slash pensions by 35%. If the universities don't get the message from February 1st's mass strike, the UCU has scheduled 17 more strike days over the following eight weeks, which is really impressive. And then the uh, rail union and fireworkers union, uh, ASLEF, was offered only four percent offered only a four percent raise per uh, year over a two-year contract in their most recent negotiations with the company uh, they do plan on bargaining all the way up until the date of the strike uh, Mick Whelan uh, as left general Secu- general secretary told the Guardian quote our members at these companies have not had an increase since 2019 despite soaring inflation and it's time the companies encouraged perhaps by the government I mean, that's a little helpful hold my breath for that one yeah mm. uh, sat down with us and got serious uh, end quote and then there is the PCS which is the public and commercial services union workers primarily work in like they, they primarily work in government departments drive testing centers museums ports and airports they're demanding a 10% raise as well. And uh, they have mentioned that they may include another 33,000 members because they still have yet to vote uh, as of when I was putting these notes together. And then the RMT is just on. The, they're continuing to strike. They've been we've been covering the RMT for a while now. They've been fighting for pay rises alongside, you know, these other unions and are really there to stand in solidarity with everyone alongside fighting against this anti-strike law. And mm-hmm. uh, 
I I think that this is gonna be one hell. Uh, I mean, this might actually make press. I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I think it's also interesting to note that this 10% raise figure that a couple of these different workers groups are aiming for might sound like a pretty big increase, but inflation in the UK is at 9.2% since a year ago. So it's like, it's actually just a hair over inflation. It's just barely starting to scrape back some of the losses they've taken. Well, and we know that those inflation numbers are never complete either True. because they only track major commodities and they don't track... Th- I mean, I don't know how inflation numbers are tracked in the UK. Maybe they're better. I doubt it. But um, at least in the US, it doesn't capture the single m- biggest cost everyone has, which is rent. So, mm-hmm. I mean, if it's anything um, like the presses in the UK, going over all of the articles for this, the pr- UK press is fucking terrible. They yeah, love just, to quote bosses and and just like complain about oh there there's been so much learning loss over the pandemic how could the teachers do this just such <laughs> fucking ghoulish bullshit mm-hmm. i mean to be fair our media is terrible and does that too <laughs> yeah it's true but i i mean one of the articles i read was just like straight up like five pages of crying it just yeah, just daily mail know. brain uh but yeah, so really excited to see the the gigantic ha- half million plus worker strike on February 1st. Uh, and considering the way things are going, I look forward to the million person strike day we have yeah. about a month later. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't like think Orthodox that Christmas. Yeah, I don't think that there's going to be very. I I would think that they're going to dig in their heels. The companies and the government are going to continue to dig in their heels on this, and that it's going to require even a bigger strike than this, which is, again, one of the biggest strikes in for a very long time. Well, I'm interested to see how that plays out because I'm kind of of two minds about it. I'm like, oh, they could just fold. Like, at any time, they could fold and do social democracy stuff and give the workers enough things to smooth this over. But if they never do it, it could escalate to a really, we'll say, mm-hmm. interesting situation. <laughs> <laughs> Cool zone, UK yeah. edition. <laughs> I hope it's so. like that weird that weird GTA game that they'd set in London in the sixties that yeah. nobody's ever played. <laughs> I did not but know that that was a thing. It was. I've never played it because nobody's played it, but it right. exists. Well, speaking of video <laughs> games, yeah, yeah, uh, moving just across the English Channel, but staying in Western Europe, uh, there was a. There's actually really a lot of news coming out of France this week, but we'll start with the sort of narrower angle and just look at Ubisoft. Uh, So, you know, folks who listen, who play video games, are probably aware of Ubisoft, uh, although lately not of a lot that's great, (laughs) which is kind of getting to the issue here. If you love Um, thousands of achievements and trying to dig into every corner for basically nothing... (laughs) What if we copy-pasted the same side mission 700 times and told you that it made the game more valuable because it was now longer? What if Donkey Kong 64 was the fucking blueprint? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so uh, Collectathon, the company, uh, has been having some financial struggles over the last year as a lot of their major releases have not been uh, big hits. And so, you know, you might think as people listening to a podcast about labor, 
that the issue might be the people making decisions at the top about what gets made, since if the problem is lack of popularity, the people who pick what they think is going to be popular might be the ones who would get blamed for this. But unfortunately, (laughs) because this is capitalism, that's not what happened. No, it's all the workers' fault. Those people who were putting their hard work in and making sure there are no bugs and that all of the actual things that were dictated by management were done, you know, it's their fault. Uh, Ignore the dictated by management line in there. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) Uh, Kotaku covered an email from CEO of the company Yves Guimau uh, in statements that Yves Guimau made about the company. He said he wants to slash $200 million expenses in, in expenses in the next two years. And in this email to the staff, as reported by Kotaku, he told workers, quote, I am also asking that each of you be especially careful and strategic with your spending and initiatives to ensure we're being as efficient and lean as possible. He also told workers that, quote, the ball is in your court to improve the performance of the company to which I have like, imagine being a character designer, getting this email and being like, yeah, I'm sorry, man, but my character designs are not the problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, it's just like, how come the 17th ghost recon game didn't make a billion dollars? It's like, maybe cause nobody gives a shit about ghost recon anymore and you should make something better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and again, as you said, that's not the animator's fault. Like it's people are, it's not that people aren't buying far cry six because the art team did a bad job. Yeah. People or because the far production wasn't lean enough. Yeah. yeah it's <laughs> like they didn't buy it. Cause you just remade the same game again mm-hmm. and made it somehow even more like imperialist propaganda. <laughs> Like, You've been trying to squeeze blood from a stone for too long, man. You've broken the stone. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and you even made a version of Far Cry called Bloodstone. I mean, how close <laughs> can you get? <laughs> Wait, really? Or maybe that was Blood I didn't Dragon. I know that. I don't know. It's funnier for the joke if it's Bloodstone. That's but true. anyway, <laughs> I think we do definitely don't want to key in on one of the words that Yves Guimau used in that email, which is the word lean. Because anybody who knows management speak and has ever heard a manager say that word is, uh, that is the word you hear right before layoffs. Mm -hmm. Because whenever bosses are talking about that they're talking about the you know management theory of lean production which always focuses on cutting costs by cutting staff and when they say they want to have efficiency what they always mean is more work with less people yeah so yeah yeah, yeah, uh, just look at the massive layoffs that we just saw at microsoft google Mm -hmm. meta pretty much every large tech company laid off anywhere from five to, in some cases, like 20% of their staff. Well, I don't want to burst anyone's bubble here, but this does actually happen every year. Companies always do layoffs after the after the busy season in the in the winter or whatever, and it doesn't matter if it actually like if their market changes or anything like that. They do it because it's a systematic thing of putting people into unemployment. It's putting people into the reserve army of labor. So no, yeah, but- every year they increase a notch on the rack that stretches no- game designers' spines out. No, Lena, come on. Google wouldn't do that. I mean, it's not like they spent $60 billion on stock buybacks the same year that they then said they had to lay off 10,000 people. A company wouldn't do that. That would be impossible and highly (laughs) immoral. Are you siding with Mr. Gillimott? I'm siding with Mr. Burns. (laughs) No, but 
I think one of the great things, though, about this story was how proactive the workers were in hearing this. So, because uh, again, this is all centered in Ubisoft's home offices, which are in Paris. So, uh, like the workers there, because they're in Paris, are represented by a union, uh, Solidaire Informatique, who put out a statement calling Guillaume's statements catastrophic and saying, quote, these words mean something. Overtime, managerial pressure, burnout, etc. Mr. Guimot asks a lot from his employees, but without any compensation, end quote. Which, yep, that's right. Uh, and so in response, it, not only has the union put out you know, a statement uh, calling out the CEO for that, uh, they've also announced that in response... Even before the companies talked about any layoffs or anything like that, they're get already getting out ahead of it and saying, fine, you want to talk like that? We're striking. Well, that's so, wild. Who knew game next, designers were good at strategy? Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so next Friday, January 27th, these workers are now scheduled to go on strike with four key demands, including the first of which, which will be very familiar from our last story, which is an immediate 10% increase for all salaries, regardless of annual wage increases to compensate for inflation. And the workers have also pointed out that while, of course, the company made these comments in response to disappointing revenues, that the company's recently received a huge investment in money from uh, Tencent, the gigantic uh, Chinese publisher. And so the company has plenty of cash on hand to be able to actually pay the workers. So I love that they went and dug into that so that they're already like, as soon as the company comes back and is like, oh, well, we just had a bad quarter. How could we pay for raises? It'd be like, lies. Yeah. You have plenty of money. <laughs> well, Ubisoft is basically like a too big to fail games company because if they were yeah. allowed to fail on the merit of their work, they would have failed already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, not honestly, the, not the workers' work, the admit the decision making. <laughs> yeah, so I, I guess, like, so just to, to finish out the list of their mm. demands, they're looking for improvement of working conditions, in particular, and I love this one implementing a four day week. Yes. Hell yeah. Yeah. And hey, guess what? If you only open the office four days a week, you don't have to pay utility costs for that uh, fifth day, saving more money for the company. So Jeez. really, this is just the workers looking out for the bottom line. Just everybody, you know? <laughs> um, uh, they're also demanding transparency in the evolution of the workforce, both locally and globally, meaning like choices to lay people off, that that has to be done in consultation with the workers, not just imposed on them. And... Relating to that, if that wasn't direct enough, a strong commitment against disguised dismissals and condemnation of abusive managerial policies that push employees to resign. So basically, like, you can't do these, like, stealth layoffs where you're like, we're not firing you, we're just only scheduling you five hours a week. Right, right. I mean, these are really, really great, and I, I think... Um, demands that reveal how well-versed these workers are in exactly what's going on in their workplace. I imagine the bosses must feel like they're having thumbscrews applied to them, and that's really yeah. great. <laughs> that's what you really always want to see from pretty a much, demand. Pretty much every time, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so, yeah, I mean, we'll see the results of this on the 27th, but I just love that they didn't wait for announcements of layoffs. They're just like, look, we all have our jobs right now. 
So let's take that collective action while we're all still here Mm -hmm. to try and head this off. I love the proactive move by these workers. Yeah, really impressive. And then also really impressive was a strike that I think a lot of people who follow Labor Press heard about. Uh, Not because it was fucking huge, but because of roving grills. But let's get to that (laughs) in a bit. So just two days after that, uh, you know, announcement uh, by the workers at Ubisoft. The entire country of France was rocked by the biggest series of strikes and nation- nationwide protests in years as millions took to the streets to fight back against President Macron's plan to rise... I got British uh, terminology on the brain. <laughs> plan to raise the retirement age from uh, 62 to 64, while Macron argues that this is a that this reform is necessary to keep the retirement pension system solvent, <laughs> which is handled by the state rather than private companies, uh, the unions have countered that the cost could easily be borne by a tax increase on the wealthy. Seventy uh, percent of the country says that they oppose the move. Per you know the polling that has come out around this, the protests were enormous shutting down rail lines stopping metro trains shuttering power plants and canceling flights as millions took to the street to fight back against the policies of austerity over half of the teachers in the entire country took part in this one-day strike crowds of workers participating in the general strike in paris stretched for over two and a half miles the uh cgt the uh, uh, yeah. Confederation. No, I don't. Don't ask me to pronounce that. Yeah, it's, sorry, it's I was the, trying to the, put you on the spot there, Dan. <laughs> That's okay. It's, it's the they're General the, Workers Confederation. Yeah, the the large. They're one of the largest unions in the country. Uh, they said that over two million French workers took part in the nationwide strike. Yeah, I mean people. People have probably seen mostly like pictures and video from this rather than necessarily a lot of reporting, I think, because mm-hmm. I think most most of the information like folks on this side of the ocean got was like memes and yeah. clips. Uh, I mean, mainstream press's coverage of French strikes and protests is pretty much they're French. They do that. And then they don't talk about it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is. And, it's the cool thing. The cool thing that the French do. <laughs> yeah, the one cool thing, and the rest of the things not so cool. Don't look into the rest of French history. Well, oh, croissants. <laughs> okay, I guess those are good. Um, but yeah, I mean, scenes from the protest were all over the internet, and they're wild. And the, you know, it's varied from you know very angry people, you know, versus people kind of turning it into a celebration. And, and as you referenced, Lena, I mean, probably the most circulated image I saw of it was the fact that some workers had modified a grill so that it was exactly the width of the streetcar rails in the city and then put wheels on the bottom of it and just pushed it along the streetcar rails while grilling while following the strike crowd. That's so fucking cool. <laughs> I loved it. it. I mean, for one, you're feeding the people, you're, you know, doing the strike. And also, like, what real, like, worker ingenuity? Like, truly, yeah. you, you love to see it. I mean, the gears were turning in people's brains that day because we heard from one worker from the post office who was interviewed by the New York Times holding a sign portraying Macron as King Louis the 14th and said, quote, of course, in France, we have cut off the heads of kings in our past history. We're not there yet with Macron, but we're here to win this fight. (laughs) (laughs) Damn, bro. 
a nice, nice ominous threat. Yeah. <laughs> I love how he's just like, I am not making a specific and actionable threat against the president of this country. But. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, it's, the energy was fantastic. I mean, there's so many great images. Uh, and and it's, I do think it's important to recognize that, like, you know, France is held up as, like, look, look at how incredible, like, the workers there strike. And, you know, that's true. This stuff is great. We've reported on plenty of other great strikes by French workers. But part of the reason that we've reported on so many of them is that while France and its government are held up as a paragon of European-style social democracy, just like the rest of the EU in recent years, it's become more and more neoliberal in its actual governmental policies. Mm -hmm. and, like, since Macron took office, the wealth of the five richest families in France has tripled to nearly half a trillion euros. So, like... On the one hand, you do have this strong legacy of like social democracy and, and, and strong unions in France, but you also still have the assault of the, you know, of neoliberalism to try and break all that down. Um, and, and that, you know, results in these big clashes. Right. And I mean, like, we love celebrating the, the grill on rails, but also some of the other things that came out in this was, you know, scenes of government repression and police beating mm -hmm. protesters, firing tear, tear gas in crowds. Um, I mean, the unions have threatened that uh, this massive strike is only the beginning if Macron doesn't turn the plan around of, you know, cutting everyone's pension benefits. Uh, in a statement, the head of the CGT, Felipe Mart uh, Martinez, told the reporters, quote, if there is no positive response from the government, today is the first step, and there will be a second step. I mean, hell, I, ho <laughs> I hope you really are prepared for that second step. That's good to hear, because France is a famously intransigent government. For instance, uh, they still have land in South America that's just part of France. It's not even like a colony yeah. or anything. It's just an overseas territory of France. Gross. Yeah. Yeah, no, that sucks. And also the French Empire still exists, even mm -hmm. though it's not called that. Uh, look up the uh, African franc if you want to know more about that. Um, but yeah, this, I mean, this incredibly impressive protest. I mean, when was the last time you saw 1.5 million Americans in the street? And I mean, probably back to 2020. Yeah. <laughs> and, and our country is 10 times the size of France. But um yeah, I mean, very impressive. It does remain to be seen whether this will work, though, because uh, a policy being extraordinarily unpopular has never stopped a French capitalist government from actually implementing it. I don't know if it stopped any capitalist government. I always remember uh, one time my brother was reaching out to me because he was needed help with a homework thing, and he's like, hey, uh, how do things become laws? Uh, and then I had to share with him the uh, public opinion doesn't matter. It, the government does what they want. Bit. And I said, yeah, this, so, is, this is not what the school wants, but this is the truth. <laughs> and there have been several attempts to change the, the retirement age in France over the last couple of decades. Uh, all have been opposed by the, the people, and some have gone through, and some have stopped. So I, it's, uh, I think it's really hard to tell, and, but I think ultimately it's going to come down to kind of what you were gesturing at. John, like, I love the ominous statement from the unions, like, if you don't, like, this is just the first step, there'll be a second one. Love that. 
you need to be able to back it up because, like, I don't even as impressive as this one giant day of protest was. Were I mean, Macron's government seems pretty set on pushing this reform through, and I don't think no matter how big a single day's protest is, I don't know that that's going to be enough. So hopefully there is an organized plan to keep this level of momentum. Even if you're not getting, you know, 2 million people in the streets, you don't need 2 million people to be really disruptive. So uh, hopefully there is a plan going there and we will, you know, keep people posted if that situation continues to escalate. Absolutely. Well, to move back over to the United States, we're going to be talking more about university strikes and they have been rampant lately. So at the University of Illinois in Chicago, hundreds of faculty uh, members have hit the picket lines this week to be the latest group of workers to fight back against the exploitation in ac- of academia. 900 faculty members organized independently with UIC Faculty United walked out on Monday the 16th after months of bargaining with the university had failed to make any headway on their issues. The main issues being that the workers are fighting for better wages, job security for adjunct faculty, and mental health resources for students. Many of these issues will be familiar to folks who follow the recent who followed the recent strikes at the new school. His faculty at UIC have been working without a contract since August. This is the third faculty strike at the University of Illinois campus in the last eight years. Which I was so like. I know there's been a lot of academic strikes in the last decade compared to previously, but (laughs) I think that says something about the ad, the administration Mm -hmm. at the university of Illinois system that across their various campuses, they've had three faculty strikes in less than 10 years. Yeah. It's absolutely fucking wild. I mean, how, how miss, how, how much mismanagement do you have to do to, to put your workers in that kind of situation. I mean, are, are they coming out here and offering raises that are just above 4% and only as merit-based raises so that most of the faculty doesn't even see that much? I mean, that's the kind of shit you... Oh, that is what they're doing. Okay. Yeah. And, and yeah. Uh, of course, you know, most of their faculty don't have tenure either, even though they do mostly have PhDs. Their starting mm-hmm. salaries are starting at 50K, 15K less than tenure-track faculty with the same credentials. And that's, uh, how do you live on that? (laughs) Yeah, especially in Chicago, it's really expensive. Well, and yeah, and on the the wage issue, I I will say it's been, learning about how fucked up academia is has been one of the very eye-opening things for me on this show. Because the fact that they're starting faculty members with PhDs at $50,000, I'm just like, why would it, why does anyone get a PhD? (laughs) Like... They're basically saying you're going to be in debt for close to the rest of your life. Probably your entire working life you'll be paying this off. Well, you know, John, if they don't spend any money, they could get that paid off in just a couple years. Yeah, if they took a second (laughs) job at Burger King and never slept and dealt drugs, they might be able to pay it off. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's ridiculous. Like, even the the $61,000, which is what the union was fighting for Mm -hmm. to be the new floor for non-tenure track faculty, even that, I'm like, I don't know... You spend all the time and all the money to go get that PhD. 61K still seems kind of low, even though it'd be a big improvement over Mm -hmm. the 50K they're at now. But in addition to the wages, 
The union's also fighting to get more job security for adjunct professors because much like the workers at the new school, workers who aren't on tenure track and who are adjunct faculty members have to work on these year-to-year contracts not knowing if they're going to be brought back. And right now, they under the current contract, they don't find out until June 1st if they're going to be brought back for the, the start of the next year in August. So, like... You're given essentially two months notice that you're going to like, oh, well, by the way, we're not bringing you back. So the union is fighting to make that. I mean, I hate that like this is what they have to fight for, but not to change the one-year contract deal, but to make it so that if the university decides that they're not going to bring a, a professor back, that they have to give them much more notice than two months. The union is also fighting to keep the contract at three years while the university wants it to be four years. Yeah, they always want it to be you know longer in between the strikes as they continue to not want to meet the workers' demands. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the other big thing that the workers have been fighting for in this is actually not even for the faculty, although I guess it is indirectly, but it's mental health care resources for students because faculty on the University of Illinois Chicago campus have said that they've noticed recent years that there's been a worsening mental health crisis on campus and have been demanding that the university actually take measures to provide resources that students need. They point out that some students are on a six-month-long waiting list for mental health resources and are unable to afford off-campus mental health clinics. And so as part of the contract fight, they've been demanding that the university provide sufficient staff at its health clinics and sufficient resources that all students can receive care and that none are turned away or kept on a goddamn waiting list for six months. Yeah, six months is just a totally inappropriate amount of time for someone who needs, I mean, like mental health crises don't wait six months. No. And I mean, like this, it's important at any point in time, but we also are in the middle of a pandemic where People could have family dying. People could have mm-hmm. like co or like co classmates or even teachers dying. Mm-hmm. Like evictions, parents getting laid off. Who knows? You know. Yeah. Well, and then I mean, as reported by the uh, local press, the WBEZ in Chicago, the same day the strike began, the university announced a commitment of seven hundred and forty-five thousand per year over six years to address the crisis. But the union points out that this is clearly not enough to cover the 34,000 students. I I did the math on that, and it was like $29 per student or something like that. Uh, That seems like enough. Yeah. (laughs) Stacey Davis Gates, president of the CTU and supporter of the UIC strike, said, quote, when you put mental health care on the table, you put the neglect of communities on t- on the table. When you put mental health care support on the negotiation table, you say leaders have not done their job and people have to unite to get the job done, end quote. That's right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's actually one of the things I thought was really neat about this strike was the fact that because Chicago has such a strong and such a militant teachers union that like... You had them showing up to support these faculty. You had Randy Weingarten actually came out to for a a rally for these teachers. So that was something I thought was really cool, was just the level of community support. And so, you know, we saw the same normal tactics, the bullshit we get from every school whenever this happens. They, they, the university came out and said the strike is, quote, disappointing and not in the best interest of the university or our students, end quote. (laughs) Like, okay. 
despite all that, uh, many students joined their teachers on the picket line and were fully supportive of the strike. Oh, imagine that. Yeah, I know. It's weird how they're always like, this isn't in the best interest of the students. And then every one of those strikes, there's so many students are on the picket line. Yeah, you know what's not in the best interest of your fucking students? Committing an amount of money per student that is equivalent to a pizza party for their mental health resources. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, I guess uh, following the trend of strikes ending over this weekend, <laughs> um, the workers were actually able to make some pretty big wins in just the span of one week because the union announced on Monday that they've reached an agreement to end the strike. They announced that as a result of their strike, workers were able to win a new salary minimum of $60,000 for non-tenure track uh, faculty, just $1,000 below what the union had been initially demanding and $10,000 higher than what they have been making, and a new salary floor of $71,500 for tenure track faculty. And one of the things I wanted to point out there, and one of the things I really appreciate and I think says a lot about these workers, is that the number where they compromise the least is the floor for the lowest paid workers. Meaning they didn't go fight for the best paid faculty members first and then throw whatever crumbs to the lowest paid workers. Mm -hmm. They went and fought for the folks that are getting the least and put them at the top of the priority list. And that is, you know, one of those things that I think is that's one of the, the things that's so inspiring to us about unions is that it's like it's one of the actual rare cases in our horrific society where we see people coming together and fighting for real solidarity. And like this, I think, is a perfect example of that because it would be really easy for the tenure track workers who have more job security to get very focused on their narrow interests. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that's encouraged by our society and capital. Mm-hmm is for yeah. everyone to have an I got mine Jack attitude. Right. Exactly. Well, and then, I mean, this is a four-year deal, but uh, it yeah, does... unfortunately. In, yeah, it does include an average of 5% for all workers, or five, an average of 5% raises for all the workers uh, who also forced the school administration into agreeing to provide more mental health resources for students and one job protections for adjunct faculty... Finally, the New Deal includes additional wins in language around non-discrimination and anti-harassment policies. So that's really important. I mean, if you go, if anyone listened to our uh, Academia's Iraqa interview, a lot of these issues are outlined in a, a little bit more detail there. But these issues are pervasive throughout the university system, and it's great that the teachers won some of these really big wins. Hell yeah, absolutely. And yeah. uh, I guess talking about not big wins. And <laughs> We're going to start talking about scams now. Who's yeah, interested yeah. in a good scam story? <laughs> yeah. Big time scam. And uh, if you've ever worked in the restaurant industry, you're familiar with this scam. Uh, it, so our listeners may have gone through a serve safe program at some point in their in their restaurant careers, uh, which, as we all know, is a program where you pay $15 to learn how to tell if food is not good to eat. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> It's true. Something that, that your grandma would have taught you for free if you had just fucking listened. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, your boss would assuredly not accept your grandma's training, even though it is mm -hmm. also assuredly a billion times better than fucking serve safe. Yes. Yeah. And well, I mean, even just to 
think about this is service. You know, it feels like there because there's a bunch of mandates for this from a bunch of different states and cities, including in the piece that we took this from in the New York Times was uh, Texas, California, Illinois, Florida, and Utah. And I mean, when I was looking up there, there's a couple more, and there's a bunch of individual cities that mandate it for all employees. Uh, but that's you know, so you think- wild. It, imagine running a company where states mandate that people must use your service. Well, and that's the yeah. thing that I Weird- think weirdly that's true of both NRAs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that uh, one of the things that might be, you know, as you're kind of alluding to there, uh, maybe unknown is that these are not government programs. Mm-hmm. These are, these are private companies or quote unquote nonprofits or whatever. But like, you know, it's estimated that since 2010, 3.6 million workers have taken this training, totaling $25 million that has gone to ServeSafe. Now, what is ServeSafe? You know, it's just some website, right? Well, it's actually the fundraising arm of the National Restaurant Association, which is mm. hence the NRA joke. Uh, and so by, you know... Paying the fifteen dollars. Come and take it. Standing in front of a a, a, a Stuckies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I mean, the fifteen dollars that you're paying, or sometimes your boss is so generous to pay for it for you, oh, is yeah. basically you know giving money to this private non-governmental, quote unquote, non-profit organization. Uh, the NRA, in this case, again, the National Restaurant Association, uh, is a business league, mm. which uh, they're one of the biggest participants in what is, you know, legalized corruption, which is commonly called lobbying, uh, mm-hmm. to to not raise either of the two minimum wages, actually any of the minimum wages, because obviously there is a third minimum wage, which is that for prisoners, which is at zero dollars. But uh, the current minimum wage uh, for most workers is seven twenty-five. That changed in two thousand nine, and then the current tipped minimum wage is two thirteen, which was put into place in nineteen ninety-one. And I want to point out here that when it changed in nineteen ninety-one to two thirteen, it changed from two dollars and nine cents. It went up four cents and hasn't wow. been changed since nineteen ninety-one. And this company that runs mandated programs called ServeSafe, and I mean, there are a couple other ones, but this is the biggest one. It's estimated that they're like almost 70% of all of this training is a huge lobbying arm against raising workers' wages. Yeah, the whole situation is just so perverse where you literally have the state mandating that you, a worker, give a percentage, not a high percentage, but still, of your wages to a company lobbying to make your exploitation worse. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That you have to fund the lobbying of people trying to keep your wages at fucking $7.25 an hour or $2.13 an hour if you're tipped. Yeah, and they they charge you for that service. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it's interesting because ServeSafe, I mean, it technically existed before 2009, but it actually became part of the National Restaurant Association right around 2009 when they actually lost their continuing battle against raising the minimum wage 
uh, that you know went up to 725, and they found that they needed to find other revenue sources, and so they decided, hey, why don't we find this? Why don't we you know buy up this program, monopolize it, and then make everybody you know take our training? That's so wild. Exactly it's so recent. Compared to like other institutionalized like standards that are run by not for profit, read just regular private companies, like compare that to the SAT, which is developed by the College Board, which was founded in 1899. <laughs> yeah. Right. Although the SAT is also fake. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and this, I mean, like this, the NRA has been lobbying against the minimum wage increase since like the 60s so there is no illusion that the government should have that this should be above board in any way like this has literally been part of their plan in fact uh one of the people who was running it actually made a a semi-public statement about it while they were buying serve safe uh but i mean basically i didn't know this and i'm pretty sure almost no one else knew this that they were being charged to have them have their own rights lobbied against. Yeah, we we had we had a quote in the article in the New York Times with a worker, a line cook at Carl's Jr., who was interviewed by the Times, uh, Mashika Ronquillo, who said, "Quote: I'm sitting up here working hard, paying this money, so I can work this job, so I can provide for my family, and I'm giving y'all money so y'all can go against me." End quote. And yeah, a hundred percent. It's it's exactly as fucked up as they portrayed it. Like it's this is one of the more perverse ways that I've seen that this country makes the working class pay for its own exploitation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely wild. Well, I guess speaking of working class exploitation, we're gonna jump back out of the United States and over to, well, I guess still kind of part of the United States, South Korea. Yeah, to United States overseas military base, uh, South Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so we've got yet another story of repression out of the right-wing Yoon Suk-yeol administration, where the attack on unions that the president has unleashed there has taken a new step forward. So this past Tuesday, January the 17th, The National Intelligence Service, the NIS, which may sound like, hey, that's a relatively innocuous acronym, uh, and that's because they are the renamed Korean CIA, Ah. (laughs) uh, because that name uh, lost a bit of its luster after the military dictatorship years. Um, So just rebrand? Yeah, purely a rebrand. The old FIFA. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, exactly. It's like, what if if we change the name, people won't be mad about it. But so. The, the renamed Korean CIA on Tuesday raided the offices of the KCTU, the, Confeder- the Korean Confederation of Trade Unions, uh, one of the biggest labor federations in the country. And this came just a week after a raid on the offices of the June 15th Committee, which is a peace group in the country advocating for peaceful reunification of the Korean Peninsula. And... The raid that was done on that peace group, which has been tied by the press and probably by the state, although it's kind of vague, uh, the reason that they raided that peace group is because they committed a very serious crime, which is they showed a movie that was somewhat nice about the DPRK. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, I mean, shit. <laughs> I, I've been I've watched a couple different documentaries. I remember one that was on Means TV 
called like uh, something about Alice or something like that. I can't remember exactly. Now I wish I hadn't tried to quote it directly. But basically, these these uh, journalists are just there. I don't even know if they're journalists. They like went over to the DPRK and came back and said, "Hey, so there are people over there," and basically got deported. Yeah, you can't yeah. you can't do that. People are like, "Oh, North Korea is so restrictive." Meanwhile, in South Korea, if you're like, "North Korea is not actually that restrictive," it's like you're in a ton of fucking trouble. <laughs> like, yeah, like, no, it's it's wild, and all of this comes back to the fact that South Korea is still a U.S. Mm-hmm. occupied overseas territory and it is still governed by the sweeping anti-communist national security law which was written by the united states during the period of open military occupation of south korea in 1948 the law gives the government extraordinary powers to suppress the rights of koreans under the justification of fighting communist agents Um, as reported by the people's dispatch the nis the former kcia claimed that the raid on the Uh, the KCTU was justified because of years of investigations of alleged links to North Korea. And again, the national security law makes it illegal to not just, you know, be an agent of the DPRK. Mm -hmm. It makes it illegal to praise or promote the DPRK or to praise or promote communism. Uh, So like, all of us would get immediately deported. Well, and it's also the kind of rule that lets you like blanket crack down on anybody that might be just pro reunification and you don't Mm -hmm. like for other reasons. And if I remember the statistics correctly, an overwhelming majority of all Koreans are pro reunification in one form or another. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I actually did, I looked it up and I remember the movie is to kill Alice. So, you know, if you're on means Mm. TV, Mm. check that out and you'll get a really great example of this exact repression we're talking about. Yeah, so there were four people who were the key targets of this raid. This uh, a senior KCTU leader, uh, an official from each of its affiliates, the Korean Health and Medical Workers Union and the Korean Metal Workers Union, and a union organizer and anti-war activist from Jeju Island, uh, which, if people don't know, Jeju Island is a area that had a high level of uh, DPRK like sympathetic workers in during the years of direct U.S. military occupation, uh, including a lot, you know, a large pro-socialist population. Uh, and so the response to that was a gigantic massacre uh, committed during U.S. occupation and under U.S. supervision when I believe approximately 50,000 people were killed by the South Korean military with the assistance of the U.S. So that's the historical background for mm-hmm. why there might be a strong peace movement on Jeju Island, and also why, of course, the Korean CIA is you know more than willing to apply this draconian national security law to peace activists there. And so when they raided these union offices, KCTU lawyers confronted the spy agency and actually live-streamed them breaking into the, the office, and the union called out the NIS for staging a ridiculous scene because they showed up to raid the desk of one person at the union and they brought hundreds of police and firefighters to surround the building. They put out those big inflatable, like I don't know what they're supposed to be called. Those like the, they're like they're they're referred to as anti-suicide mattresses. They're like we're doing this big raid. People are going to jump out of the building and try and kill themselves. And the, and the union was like, 
you wanted to look through one person's desk. You just wanted to make a scene and yeah. make and like try and imply that there was some huge conspiracy. Yeah, it's very similar to when the Adams County Sheriff raided Afro Man's house. <laughs> Actually, yes. <laughs> yeah, like that is it's a joke, but you're right. Yeah. Uh yeah, big perp walk vibes. Yeah. But um like as when we talked about the recent truckers strike in South Korea, we talked a little bit about the the UN administration and during that strike, they made similar baseless claims that the only reason the truckers are going on strike isn't because they don't have a minimum wage and the fact that they're owner-operators means that without a minimum wage, they can't pay their bills. No, no, no. That's not why they struck. They struck because they were under orders from the DPRK to disrupt and destroy the South Korean economy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Wow. I'm the communist overlord, and I have my infiltrators in South Korea, and my order to them is, stop working. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> this is another yeah. example of, of fascists blaming uh, communists for things that fascists do. Mm. Yeah, and so... We've seen, again, more stuff that we see over in the U.S. because this is all just borrowing from the U.S. CIA's playbook where NIS officials have leaked false rumors to conservative press outlets alleging that progressive groups in the country, including the KCTU, have been taking orders from the DPR government for years. Uh, in an article in the Korea Times describes a fanciful cloak-and-dagger meeting in Cambodia between a DPRK agent and a former official from the Progressive Party. Uh, and... <laughs> That meeting was blamed for a call last year from the KCTU for an end to the military occupation of South Korea by the United States. Wow. Again, the claim is the, the only reason these workers would ask for a foreign military to stop occupying their country is not because, you know, maybe they want their own sovereignty or anything. It's because, well, they must be DPRK agents. Oh. No one in their right minds would hate the U.S. military. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so in an interview with uh, journalist Tim Shorak, who is great Twitter follow, by the way, knows a ton about Korea and Japan, really, really good resource there. Uh, activist KJ No said of the allegations that he, quote, would just point out the absurdity. You don't need North Korea to tell a union to strike any more than the Samsung Corporation needs orders from the U.S. to stiff wages, end quote. Damn. Which I think is a really, that's a really, really good comparison. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, uh, then, you know, we do also have another quote from uh, ruling People's Power Party, uh, you know, the right-wing party in, this, in South Korea that's currently in power. Uh, the spokesperson, Yang Kun-hee, said in a, in their statement, quote, it gives me goosebumps that these spies were behind anti-conservative, anti-government, and anti-U.S. protests. Suspicions have been raised that they formed a nationwide network. We should use this opportunity to fight the forces that take orders from North Korea to divide the society and stoke conflict. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. Holy shit. <laughs> There's nothing scarier than an anti-conservative protest. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah, I'm sure it's the DPRK that's dividing South Korean society, not the, you know, highest levels of inequality in the East Asian region. 
Uh, yeah, it's definitely, and the fact that the Samsung Corporation alone accounts for something like 17% of the country's GDP. That has nothing to do with it, the fact that the working class there has, I believe, the highest debt burden in the world. <laughs> no, those, None yeah. of that has anything to do with the divisions in society. Right. And co- sort of conflict. No, they're just fun facts that you memorize for bar trivia. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, in a statement, the Union Federation said, quote, this is nothing but an attempt to undermine the KCTU, which opposes the anti-labor policy direction of uh, President Yoon Suk-yeol. The KCTU uh, Jeju headquarters is not an organization that makes moves at someone's behest, nor can it be operated in that way. It is run voluntarily and democratically by Jeju workers. Yeah, and I mean... Yeah, they're absolutely right. It's just this is just so frustrating because these raids are clearly part of an anti-communist witch hunt aimed at crushing the power of the working class like before it can fully mobilize in South Korea. And I think importantly for context, it's also clearly part of an attempt to boost the flagging popularity of the UN administration, which is currently in the toilet. It's in right. something like the 20s, like percentage wise for uh, pub- popular approval. And so what better opportunity to say, aha, a a foreign conspiracy against me. See, everyone must rally to me. (laughs) So Uh. uh, not saying that's going to necessarily work, but that's usually how these things are planned out anyway. And also critically that I think is very important to point out about these raids. These also come suspiciously timed just before the NIS, the former KCIA, is set to lose the legal authority to investigate domestic cases of spying due to a bill that was passed by the previous center-left government. Oh, so this is basically them doing the same thing cops do anytime there's a little bit of reform that gets proposed, they immediately start cracking down on whatever crime they imagine would be much more allowed under the new reforms. And then they're like, see, you need us. Mm -hmm. We put people in jail like crazy. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's exactly what this is. And so like the, the successor to the KCIA inventing a fake spy ring to justify more legal powers and funding is directly in line with the organization that founded the KCIA, the United States CIA. Uh, the, our intelligence organizations do this shit all the time. It's a big part of the reason that the U.S. like FBI mm-hmm. invents fake terror plots all the time and entraps you know, oftentimes poor, like, uh, disabled folks into supposedly performing them. Sometimes they even incubate real terror plots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that too. Um, uh, although that's tied to a lot more stuff. Listen to the repressive state apparatus episodes. True. But, um, yeah, and, and there was an editorial in uh, Hank Yoray that pointed out, quote, the NIS has a long history of numerous episodes involving false espionage allegations. Not all that long ago, it forged evidence during the Park Jun-hee administration to falsely accuse Seoul Metropolitan government employee Yoon Woo-sung of spying, end quote. So again, they have done this shit before, and they're doing this all at the time when they're about to lose some of their legal powers. So Again, they've provided no evidence whatsoever. They're claiming that, like, strikes and protests, which are an obvious natural outgrowth of the incredibly crushing inequality and level of poverty faced by the working class in South Korea. And no, it must be this great communist conspiracy. (laughs) 
Yeah. It's 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 ludicrous and I just, you know, want to extend our solidarity to the the organized workers over there in Korea uh dealing with this McCarthyite style repression. Absolutely. And to finish out our stories for this week, uh replacing our Starbucks air uh segment is currently a Nickelodeon where a little over a month ago, 177 workers of an animation team that works at a Nickelodeon studio filed for union recognition with the Animators Guild, which is part of IATSE. On January 17th, uh, Nickelodeon decided to voluntarily recognize the union, allowing them, them to join more than 400 other workers in the Animation Guild at Nickelodeon Studios under one union contract. Now... Hell yeah. It is really cool, but I think that we got to remember that it was a little over a month ago that the actual filing was put into place, and the reason it took so long for Nick's to, uh, I should just say Nickelodeon's, for for Nickelodeon to actually recognize them is because initially they tried to split up the union by trying to... uh, basically use misconceptions in labor law to say that because these are uh, production workers that they should be Mm. separate from animators and they went Mm. through some legal processes and the union wasn't having it they're like that's that's bullshit uh you can't try to split us up like this we're gonna be under one contract and then a month later nickelodeon was just like fine all (laughs) right well you win the union stood outside nickelodeon's window and they're like your stance is whack. Your face is whack. The fact that you don't even do a kickflip is whack. <laughs> Me, I'm tight as fuck. <laughs> That's right. That's right. The workers say that they're going to be fighting for higher wages and lower health care costs. And so that that's really great. We have a quote here from Ryan Brodsky, who said in the union's initial announcement, quote, the current pay gap for production roles makes it near impossible to survive in Los Angeles. Many of us have taken the shame of asking our parents for money so that we can pay our rent and eat. We're working full time for one of the largest corporations on earth, so there's no reason that our parents should be funding this multi-billion dollar corporation, which... Uh, end quote. And which I want to point out here is this sort of thing happens so much in art where there, people are consistently underpaid so that it's actually only people from more wealthy families who can ever even get into these jobs in the first place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we heard all that same stuff from the HarperCollins workers who are still on strike, by the way. <laughs> yeah, well. Uh, now move in their second month. Yeah. Well, and this makes the union the largest, or this now makes this part of the union the largest unit of production workers in the animation guild. So it's really great. And I'm glad that Nickelodeon did not decide to fight them too hard about this. I mean, I'm not going to say they didn't fight because they literally did by trying to split up the union. But, you know, the voluntary recognition is good. Uh, I, ma- I can't imagine, like, a strike happening at Nickelodeon and, like, having to explain to children that the shows that they love are being ran by absolute monsters. Yeah. You know, like at Disney. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, I mean, plenty, plenty of old uh, Nickelodeon stuff when John yeah. Kretschfalewski was involved and plenty of other pieces of oh, shit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I always forget about that. That sucks. But anyways, we're happy about the voluntary recognition, and I want to focus on that because that's why we put this at the right. the end of the episode. Absolutely. But, you know, it's the end of the episode, folks, and that can only mean one thing. It's time for the meme review. That's right. Hell yeah. 
Uh, the first one is a Terminator meme, which I thought was funny. I actually haven't seen this movie. Well, I've seen parts of it, but I don't remember it. But this this scene is, uh, I believe, kind of iconic. Oh, you haven't seen T2? Oh, one of the greatest action movies of all time. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so this is the scene from Terminator 2 where, it, it, if you haven't seen the movie, you've seen the meme format, <laughs> where basically you know you've got young john connor in the the phone booth with with arnold and they're trying to he's you know check in to see if his parents are real or if they've been you know uh taken out by the t1000 which can shapeshift and so you've got they've got to come up with a question that they can find out and so arnold covering the phones asking how much is inflation and the kids like uh like 12% <laughs> and then he asks the, over the phone should we sign this extension and then the the person on the other end, uh, John Connor's mom, is just like, two percent is fine, sweetie. We're lucky to get it." And then he cuts back. Your shop steward is dead. <laughs> <laughs> Oof. Yeah, yeah. It's a a little bit about you know having a good bargaining committee. That's right. <laughs> yep. And then uh, our next meme is one of my favorite things, which is a slam on the current state of science journalism. Uh, So at the top, you have a scientist gesturing, and it says, Scientist, my discoveries are useless if taken out of context. Internet. And then you have a headline, and it says, Scientists claim their discoveries are useless. (laughs) (laughs) I also like that it was apparently written by that cucumber guy. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I thought that one was pretty funny. So this... This next one, I I actually just put this one in before we started because I don't know. I really like this one because it's it gets to a point that you hear brought up so fucking constantly that it's so annoying whenever you talk to anybody about like um, about like socialism or anything like that. And so this is one of those like I, I think of it as like Shadow of the Colossus memes. Mm-hmm. Where you have like the lone figure standing in a desolate area faced by this gigantic like huge creature and it's like the small person is people won't work without a profit motive and then looming over it enormous is hobbyists (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean if you think people won't go to the ends of the earth to pursue something that doesn't make them any money i would encourage you to go to the warhammer 40k subreddit Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah. Our next one is a, a meme from real life, which was uh, a photo taken, honestly, may, oh, it's maybe out of the back of a car because it almost looks a little bit like an airplane window. But it's the mm-hmm. it's an open door of a, of a work van, as far as I can tell. And the name of this company is maybe half cut off, but what we see on the door that is open, it just says England removal and then a phone number. <laughs> I I love this one because, look, having a service you can call for your urgent England removal needs, very good. But I also appreciate this because this is uh, a local meme for me uh, because the company that that van is from is actually headquartered right in the town over from me. Oh, <laughs> do you know what the company this is? New England dent removal. Oh, I was going to guess <laughs> New England pest removal. Yeah. Dent, that's good. <laughs> Love to get a yeah, dent so like It's not as nice the- as a bunch of Irish fellas showing up to n- kick out the Brits, but... It's still pretty yeah. good. <laughs> I also like, though, I like to imagine that, that the, the the back door, the other half of this, 
is somehow a suicide door that opens the other way. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it's not, but it's funnier in my head if it is. Because that means that the one door says England removal, and the other door just says New Dent. (laughs) (laughs) Very nice. Very nice. And then one of my favorites from this week. uh, Actually, I I read like a bunch of them. John, did you want to do this one? Oh, yeah. Um, So this is a Cats and Hard Hats meme. Uh, Cats with Hard Hats, excuse me. And they're always a treasure trove for really good content. And this is just... uh, uh, this is a classic spin on the um, why do you give me your toughest challenges because you are my best soldier meme format, but you have the the uh, the, cat, the worker cat with the tools and the hard hat who says, why do you give me your toughest jobs? And then supervisor cat wearing the sunglasses says, because you're my least complaining worker. <laughs> <laughs> and I got to tell you, folks, self part of self-care is complaining a lot at work and occasionally doing something wrong on purpose. Nothing major. That's right. Just enough that you don't get more responsibilities. <laughs> yeah, yeah because as as you learn on the job very quickly, with great responsibility does not necessarily come more pay. No. That's with right. With great responsibility right. comes additional responsibilities. <laughs> yep. <laughs> every time. Every time. Well, and with that really great advice, we're going to wrap for this episode. Uh, we want to thank everyone who supports the show and, you know, because we're entirely listener supported. If you are not supporting the show currently, you can do so at patreon.com slash workstoppage. We are currently in the middle of our Unions in the Mob Reputation versus Reality series where we're currently getting into some really, really cool stuff. I really encourage y'all to support us, partially because we really need it, but also... Because you get really cool stuff. And uh, if you can't afford to become a patron, jump in the Discord. Jump in the Discord anyway. Uh, Message one of us. Anyway, uh, write us a review somewhere. Follow John on Twitter at Facebook Villain. Follow the pod at Work Stoppage Pod. Listen to Beep Beep Blood. Listen to Red Game Table. And as always, labor peace is not in our interest. And solidarity forever. Solidarity. Solidarity, everybody. The Adams County Sheriff kicked down my door. Then I heard the glass break. They found no kidnapping victims, just some lemon pound cake. Mama's lemon pound cake. It tastes so nice. It made the sheriff wanna put down his gun. Cut him a slice Of what? Of what? Lemon pound cake He wanna put down his glide Lemon pound cake Trending on TikTok Lemon pound cake He's a family guy Lemon pound cake Got the munchies because he got hot Lemon pound cake Pound cake He's a Adams County Sheriff He's hungry and he's big as hell He was sniffing for weed Then he smelled another smell What was that? Mama's lemon pound cake It tastes so nice It made the sheriff wanna put down his gun Cut him a slice Of what? Of what? Lemon pound cake He wanna put down his glide Lemon pound cake Trending on TikTok Lemon pound cake 
He's a family guy. Lemon pound cake. Get the munchies because he got high. Lemon pound cake. Pound cake. He sees my cake and my porno mag. Call boom boom. Something happened to his camera on the way to the evidence room. <laughs> Mama's lemon pound cake. Sheriff wanna put down his gun and cut him a slice. Of what? Of what? Lemon pound cake. He wanna put down his glide. Lemon pound cake. Trending on TikTok. Lemon pound cake. He's a family guy. Lemon pound cake. The munchies because he got high. Lemon pound cake. Pound cake. Lemon pound cake. He wanna put down his glide Lemon pound cake Trending on TikTok Lemon pound cake He's a family guy Lemon pound cake The munchies because he got high Lemon pound cake Pound cake It's funny like dealing with I don't know people down here in southern New England where it's like it's literally there's no accumulation and everybody's like at this the minute it starts flurrying outside the office they're like oh oh we might might have to go home and i'm like look from the leave early perspective great love it love the love the energy fantastic however as a northern new england chauvinist i must insert myself into this conversation (laughs) and be like what the fuck are y'all worrying about that shit isn't even sticking to the road and everybody's just like oh we might have to leave early what if there's accumulation i'm just like how how do you all function yeah that's the thing is like you were saying it's like you know i'm never gonna bring that critique to them because i am just excited about the prospect that someone in power is going to tell us all to go home Oh, I, I, I'll happily bring that critique to people because it's, it's a fun conversation that wastes a lot of time. But if it's ever coming out of my boss potentially being like, oh, we might have to leave, I will absolutely get on board and be like, oh, yeah, I don't know. You know, we got people with long commutes. They might not make it with this zero accumulation on the road. You're definitely right. We should definitely leave. <laughs> yeah, it's all melting right away. And that's when you start hydroplaning. So we need to get out of here. A- <laughs> that's, right. that's right. <laughs> you know, and it's not that I don't trust everyone here because I definitely do. It's that there's every Everyone else out there right yeah. right yeah oh man that's such a great line you can't tr- you know you can't trust the employees who work in the building across the street you've seen the way they that's park. right because <laughs> they're all just like oh it's it's snowing and i'm like eh, not really yeah <laughs> like it's just you, mostly just it's just like raining real yeah <laughs> what do you live in miami you don't see this shit very often like <laughs> that's the thing i just don't get it whatever yeah <laughs> Well, that, that was, that's, that's, that's such a good bet. I'll probably put it at the end of the episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. All right. Well, here, I'll launch into, uh, into an intro here.